Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again this week. Remember that you can catch us every week right here on your favorite Catholic radio station, or if you miss an episode, or maybe you just prefer to listen as a podcast, you can find that on mncatholic.org podcast. Leave us any comments or questions that you have in a five-star rating so that other Catholics can find us more easily. In today's episode, we're talking about education and why parents should consider and discern very carefully about where they send their child to school. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about the inner workings of the Catholic Conference and what it takes to stay on top of all the bills that come up at the Capitol. In our bricklayer segment, we have a great idea for growing in faith during this Lenten season. And listeners, maybe you have an idea for the bricklayer segment. Send those ideas our way, or even your questions for the mailbag segment. The address is show at mncatholic.org, or just leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You'll find us by searching for Minnesota Catholic Conference. We are now blessed to be joined on the line by Mary Rice Hassan. She is the co-author of Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. She's joining us from Washington, D.C., where she is the Kate O'Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Before joining EPPC, Mary worked as an attorney and writer and served the church for over 20 years in leadership positions in Catholic marriage prep programs, diocesan education efforts, and Catholic ministries to women and families. She's also director of the Catholic Women's Forum, a network of Catholic professional women and scholars seeking to amplify the voice of Catholic women in support of human dignity, authentic freedom, and Catholic social teaching. Today we're speaking with Mary about the importance of Catholic education. Mary Rice Hassan, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jason. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. Mary, let's start with the title of your book. It's provocative. Why should parents pull their children out of public schools? It is provocative, intentionally so. We're not trying to tell people what to do, but what we are trying to do is emphasize that there are no do-overs on childhood, and education is formative of the person. It determines so much about the, the life choices that our children will make as adults, their spiritual vitality, whether their lives will be in sync with the Lord. And, and so the reason why our title is so intentionally provocative is because we're experiencing a crisis in public education that is radically different from what we've seen even 20, 10, even five years ago. And so we hope to really help parents be aware that this is a different situation and that there are no do-overs on childhood. You've you got to get this right because it's formative of the person. And, and we want our kids to grow up and know who they are and to love God, as well as to have those skills that are important for being a, you know, a productive member of society, an adult who can have their own family, etc. But in this day and age, the culture is just, it's like a tidal wave hitting our kids. And unfortunately, in today's public schools, our children are not getting uh, the rootedness in the, the values and, and the truth. And so we encourage parents to look at other alternatives and at the very least to be aware of what is out there and, and how things have changed. That's a compelling why behind the book. You know, start with why. So you've given us the why. What's going on in public schools that makes them so problematic right now? 
parents are used to hearing about sort of the educational difficulties of public schools, because when you look at what's considered the nation's report card just on an education level, every year we see these statistics that the majority of kids being educated in public schools, they usually test fourth graders and eighth graders, and you have fewer than half of American children who are testing proficient in math and in reading. But that average really, it covers up a lot because what we see is a great disparity in schools that are urban. Sometimes those proficiency levels can be 1%, 2%. In other words, these children are not being taught the basic skills that we need. And yet parents, perhaps in more affluent school districts, might say, well, that's not my school district. So the thing that I would emphasize to parents is that while we're sort of used to looking at those statistics and realizing there are problems in, quote, the public schools, it's variable. But we have to go deeper and we have to ask some further questions. So it's not just about what test scores kids are getting in terms of proficiency. That's, that's sort of like a, a minimum, a, a basic level. That's, that's what the schools are supposed to do. And yet across the board, they're not meeting that. But from a Catholic perspective, the schools are failing parents especially parents of faith, not just Catholics, but Christians and religious believers in general, because the schools are they are not imparting truth. They're imparting ideology in many respects. It's very, very much focused these days on activism. And worse, I think there's a lie being told to our children about who they are. So this fundamental aspect, uh, the most basic thing about a person, right, is, is who you are. Knowing you're, you're male or female, you're created by God, you, you have a purpose in life, and, and that's missing from the conversation. So in terms of the problems we see, there's been a steady sort of increase in sort of the secularism within our schools. And while we don't want the schools to be teaching religion, the practical fruit of that is that God is erased from all the big conversations of our kids' lives and all of their education. So you look at science, God's not in the picture. Well, who's the author of science? You look at history, and God has played such a tremendous, and faith and religion has played such a tremendous role in not just the history of the U.S., but the global history. And yet, God is erased from those conversations, unless religion is portrayed in in a negative way. One thing that we've found in just looking at the research of, of kids coming out of public schools more recently compared to kids who are in a a strong faith-based program is the kids who come through that public education system are far less likely to practice their faith. In fact, in terms of Catholic kids, we see that among millennials, those who attended public schools K-12, through only about 5% continue to attend Mass weekly, whereas those who attend Catholic schools, about 40% of millennials will attend Mass weekly. That's, that's a huge difference in terms of a child's integration of their faith. And what that tells us is that the, the force of the school culture where God is erased can really outweigh even the very best family formation. And, and it certainly can't be countered with one hour of religious education a week. So that loss of grounding in faith, that worldview that God matters and that our relationship with Him is the touchstone of our life, that's a huge consequence we're seeing as so many 
Catholic kids and children who are in families of faith are being educated in public schools, they're coming out of those 12 years having lost their faith. That should be a something that concerns all of us. And there are many other issues, but, you know, we can, we can go into those. But I think for believers, that's the core thing. You know, you, you want your kids to grow up and, and to hold on to that faith you've given them. And yet our kids step into the public education system and they're hit with like this tsunami wave of an educational culture that just erases God. God's sort of towed out and you know, thrown out and, and, and just not part of those conversations. So our kids create a habit for 12 years of living as if God did not exist, of discovering, at least during their school hours, their peer relationships, their educational mentorships. God's just not part of that conversation, and that has a consequence. It's almost as though the, the focus is on identity. Who are we as persons, and who are we in relation to everybody else? Here in Minnesota, we have a new set of proposed social study standards, for example, mm-hmm. that move away from traditional subjects, American history, but with a focus on migration, ethnicity, multiculturalism, LGBT studies, for example. Mm-hmm. So in what way is a lot of what's going on in education really a, an attempt to redefine a child's identity away from a traditional understanding or Christian anthropology and a conception of citizenship in a classical sort of American vein into the kind of the woke or progressive ideology of multiculturalism and the alphabet mm-hmm. soup of identity politics? Yeah, you put your finger exactly on it. I was going to mention those those new social studies standards because I was looking at those. And it's just like what we're seeing with the gender identity standards that are just throughout Minnesota schools, public schools, where the message to the child is, on the one hand, you self-determine, you self-identify as, quote, who you are, regardless of your biological sex and regardless of your faith. And yet, at the same time, you have sort of this contradictory message that your identity is fixed in terms of your racial composition. Whiteness is bad. People of color are systematically disadvantaged. And and automatically, that puts us in opposing camps instead of looking, as we do through a Catholic lens, each person has dignity, each person is loved by God, each person has potential that needs to be encouraged. And, And so we don't we don't divide people among all these different categories, and yet this focus on sort of a false sense of identity is not rooted in the true sense of identity. And people sometimes say, well, what do I tell my kids? Who are they? Well, the most basic thing is you're, you're a creature of God. You, you are a son or daughter of God. You are male or female. You are in relationship with Him from the first moment of your existence. And you're born into a family or raised by a family in the case of an adoptive situation where the the natural parents could not raise the child. But God's given you a family, and that's part of your identity, too. That's part of your your heritage. And and as you're you're baptized into the Church, that's that is something that never changes, right? Baptism is an indelible mark. You are claimed for for God's family. And these are the bases of our identity. And everything else is something that factors into our experiences but cannot define us. And yet what we're seeing in the public school system is a running away from or a denial of the basic truth of who we are, male or female, person created by God in relationship with God. Those those basic foundational elements of who we are are denied, are thrown out. And yet there's this focus then on all of these constructed identities, which are 
uh, I don't know what you're seeing, but to me, they're just multiplying. It, it's like they're, there's just continuous fracturing of American society, according to these segments and sub-segments and, and pitting one against the other. And, and you're either an oppressor or you're the oppressed. And it's not just an impoverished way to look at who we are and our country's culture, but it, it's crippling, I think, because it, it puts people in these um, almost like a caste system. You you can't break out of that. You're the oppressed or you're the oppressor. And and our country is so flawed. <laughs> How do we fix that? So just to get back to that identity point, I, I think this is crucial. And to the extent that our schools and the public education system is forming our children in a view of themselves and a view of others that is fundamentally false, in other words, you're Sexual identity doesn't matter, male or female. You can just identify yourself, self-identify out of that. And the, the truth that we're creatures in relationship with God, well, we don't pay attention to that either. The, when those fundamental things are denied, well, kids are sort of rootless, right? They're looking for something. And so these intersectional constructed identities then become the things that are emphasized and focused on and and it's it's no substitute for real learning. It's no substitute for giving children that confidence in who they are. That doesn't come from something external. It comes from the truth about who they are. So identity is critical, and it's a critical problem right now in the schools. And one reason why in our book we say the rise of gender ideology as well as the fact that God is a race, these are game changers in terms of the public education system in ways that are different today than they were even five years ago. We're speaking with Mary Rice Hassan. She is the co-author of Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. Mary, it's well known that public education conglomerate, or the blob as we call it here, is uh, aligned with the Democratic (laughs) Party. But the Republican Party provides almost no opposition to it. And in every budget cycle, they highlight how much they continue to fund public education, increase the formula, et cetera, et cetera. Why is there no real effective opposition to what's going on? We just continue to see these trends grow and grow. You can be in Texas. You can be in Minnesota, red states, blue states. It doesn't matter. These cultural trends and what's going on in the public schools continue. What's going on that there's no real political opposition to the trends in public schools? Mm-hmm. I think part of it is is just a political power thing. The fact that the teachers unions have a tremendous amount of power, both financial in terms of contributing to election campaigns, and also they control the media spin on that. If you don't vote in favor of more funding for public education, you are, quote, anti-education. Instead of what we have to do is reframe this. What's important is the child And the funding needs to follow the child, and parents need to be empowered because they know their child best. They need to be empowered to make the decisions about their child's education that are going to be best for that child. So there's vested interest in the education establishment and in the politicians who vote to perpetuate it in just continuing the money flow and keeping things as they are. But I would encourage both legislators and parents to, to really think about this, even in, in just economic terms. The last data I saw was from national data. From 2017, we spend $694 billion in public funds for public elementary and secondary education. $694 billion. And we have to step back and say, what are we getting for that? We're getting kids who, on average, as I said, the proficiency level is 
less than half of our, our children are proficient. That means basically competent in reading and math. We're seeing kids who are being taught that our country is not to be valued. It's flawed from its inception, and it needs to be dismantled and restructured and that it's just bad. We see an educational culture that's dividing people and fracturing us as a people. And then we're seeing this this false vision of who we are as a person, that it's all self-identification. If you want to identify as a boy, we'll treat you like a boy. And despite the fact that reality says you're not a boy, (laughs) you're a girl. So we have to even just looking at it as a return on the investment, what we're getting, what, what this is, is a public funding of a progressive worldview. And progressive sounds like a nice word, but I'm talking about progressive ideology where that is just antithetical in these core principles. It's antithetical to Catholic beliefs, the, the belief in the person, the belief in the creator, the belief in each person's goodness and the value of forgiveness. And, you know, we don't condemn people because of the color of their skin. So looking at it as an investment, even a, someone who is not does not share our faith ought to say, this is a really poor return on, on an investment. But there's also an economic aspect in that um, I've talked with people from small towns who will say, you know, you look at the public school public schools in that town, they tend to employ one way or another or or contribute to the economy of that local town in significant ways, whether it's the food service people, the janitorial staff, the administrative people, not just teachers. So locales can be very invested in upholding kind of the, the continual economic flow through the public school system. And we have to have a little bit more trust in American innovation that if you break up that monopoly, better things are going to happen. It's not like there won't be a, a need for teachers or there won't be a need for other services. It's just going to be distributed differently and according to people's own decisions and choices about what's best for their family. We've got to get past that fear and that myth that opposing funding the the public education monopoly is somehow anti-education. It's not. And the people who are most in favor of school choice and getting their kids out of the failing public schools are people who are minority, people of color, people of low income. In other words, they know this is not a good deal (laughs) and and more money isn't going to fix it. They need to be able to choose what is best for their own children. A compelling argument for school choice indeed. Progressive advocates and education professionals understand that education is sort of the front lines in terms of the culture, and that's where the battle for the souls and hearts of children is present. But the reality is that 85% of Catholic kids are in public schools, and not all of them are able to get out. What is the pastoral response to the competing dogmas that are instilled in the public schools? How does the church respond to that dynamic, especially for the kids who aren't able to attend uh, Catholic schools? Well, first of all, I challenge that, that assumption, because back in the, the late 1800s, the bishops of the U.S. said, we're going to make it possible for any kid who wants to get a Catholic education. Our kids must have a Catholic education. And I think part of what happened in the 60s and 70s was, you know, Catholics were assimilating into the culture, and we sort of bought into the idea that we need to be educated in the same way as everyone else. There's not that much difference between us and the culture. But things have radically changed. The culture is way far away from what we believe. And so it's untenable 
to just sort of shrug and say, well, you know, that's 85% of our Catholic kids are there, so we'll do the best we can. We've got to think creatively. And if there's one good thing out of the COVID situation, I think it helped parents realize, one, what their kids are getting, and two, there are alternatives, whether it's pods, small groups, technologically aided education, whether it's homeschooling. I remember talking with one bishop in particular who was talking about his his ideal for the diocese, and it would be that the parish would be an educational hub, but that there would be many different educational options that would be sort of grounded there. Whether people are homeschooling, they're welcome. Whether people are doing co-ops, they're welcome. They can collaborate there. Whether people are are enrolled part-time or um, for select subjects in in the Catholic schools, they're welcome. And the whole point being we want to foster as many different educational options and make it possible for people. And when I talk to people who are gifted with financial means and who are philanthropists, and they say, what should I do? What's good fun? I say Catholic education, because this is the future, not just of our church, but of our country. This makes a huge difference in that child's life, but then collectively in who we become as a people. So that's the first thing I'd say is let's not sort of grant the premise that people are just stuck I think we have to help people become aware of why this moment today is different even from five years ago and why it's imperative that we help our families give their children a Catholic education. And then for those who, whether it's temporarily or, or, or they just cannot envision a way to get out, I think the church needs to provide resources and parents need to be engaged. What is it that your child is learning? And understand and be proactive. Teach them who they are. They're not... A gender, which is kind of like a word cloud, you just sort of, and stereotypes, you, you figure out where do I fit, and, and you choose your identity. That's, that's just not true. We're male or female, created as sons or daughters of the Lord, and, and that has meaning. So grounding our kids in, in truth, and then seeking assistance from those who know more about particular areas and who can support our kids. Every child needs other adults who are going to mentor them in the truth. So being plugged into the parish in significant ways, whether it's the youth group or the adult faith formation, so you you can explain things to your kids. And then I would love to see pastors speaking about this more, just the importance of Catholic education. It's not just about, quote, the discipline and, and the the character building, that this is about something more fundamental, embracing who you are and realizing that the cultural vision now is completely opposed to that. The way I like to think about it is there's a cost to every education. Public education looks free, but the cost can be our child's sense of self, their, their mental health, their soul, if they lose their faith. Whereas the cost for private school, yeah, it's financial. Cost of homeschooling is time. But it's not like public education is free. There is a cost. And so we have to weigh that and choose accordingly. Mary, you've no doubt planted some seeds in the minds and hearts of our listeners and probably whetted some appetites to go further. You've written a lot on these issues and have a lot of resources. Where can people go to find out more? Particularly on the issue of gender ideology and basic question of who we are, Christian anthropology, I encourage listeners to go to our new website, personandidentity.com. It's a new resource, particularly for Catholic families, schools, institutions, clergy, 
just promoting the Christian vision of the person, but also equipping Catholics with what they need to know about what's being taught, what's being fed to our children through the culture, particularly regarding this whole transgender ideology. And so personandidentity.com. We also have many resources on our general website, catholicwomensforum.org. So I encourage people to, to be in touch and let us know how we can help. Wonderful. Mary Rice Hassan, you've done some seminars for Catholic school and education leaders here in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, and we're grateful for your leadership. Personandidentity.com is the website. Get Out Now is the book. Mary Rice Hassan, thanks so much for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thank you so much, Stacey. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? We had listeners who were wondering, with so many bills that are introduced every session, how does the Catholic Conference actually just keep track of everything? And then how do we decide on what issues take more precedence? How do we then go about asking Catholics to take action on a particular bill? Well, in any given legislative session, there are thousands of bills introduced at the legislature. The sheer fact of a bill introduction is not dispositive in any way. Anyone with an election certificate can introduce a bill. So lots of bills are, in fact, introduced. Most of them go nowhere in the process, but we have to sort through them and track them all. So what we do is we read the bill introductions as they are processed. We highlight things that may get traction or things of which are particular concern. And that's how we begin to develop our legislative agenda. When bills begin to get traction in the legislative process, or when we are concerned in particular that a bill has an intersection with life dignity and the common good, we will look at that to see whether we should give it some traction and support that piece of legislation or, in fact, oppose it because it undermines human life and human dignity. So when we, as a staff at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a list of those bills, then we consult with our bishops and say, which of these would you like to take a position on? And they give us a positive or a negative. And we offer, of course, the staff as a recommendation. And then so it's really a collaborative process between staff and bishops about what legislation MCC supports and what legislation MCC opposes. What's nice about our work is that we don't get up in the morning every day and wonder, well, what are we going to support or what are we going to oppose? Because our principles remain the same and our principles are Catholic social teaching. So when you have that framework, that theological framework to analyze bills and look at them, we can highlight which ones are going to be key and which ones we can set aside. Now, the reality is that we take a position on relatively few bills, precisely because it's uh, really within the realm of the laity's judgment to engage on important public policy questions. The church doesn't need as an institution to take a position on everything because there are lots of ways in which um, people can build the common good. These are called prudential judgments. The church doesn't need to take a position on whether we should fund Trunk Highway 14, for example. That's the way in which we build a coherent transportation system that supports public safety, moves traffic efficiently. These are judgments for lay people, and the institutional church doesn't need, through the clergy, doesn't need to take a position on those. But there are issues that are so fundamental to life and dignity that the church, through its bishops, says to the Catholics, these are important questions. 
please joining us in supporting or opposing those issues. And that's really the why behind uh, why MCC takes a position on key issues and lobbies them, because the bishops have a pastoral concern and solicitude for all the people in their dioceses, not just Catholics. And they wouldn't be fulfilling that pastoral role, helping foster a church that loves its neighbor and works for the good of the community, works for justice and human dignity, without taking a position on key issues and inviting Catholics to join in them in advocacy for those public policy initiatives. Great. Thanks, Jason. And uh, everyone who's listening, you can actually see some of those bills on our bill tracker if you go to mncatholic.org forward slash action center. And before we wrap up this week, we want to leave our listeners with a practical way that they can start building the bridge between faith and public life. What do you have for this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, Ash Wednesday is sooner than you think. And oftentimes that has all of us thinking about what we're going to give up. How about instead of giving up something, you add something this year? Although I I do recommend giving up something too. Ascetic practices are good. We want to encourage all of our listeners to add a daily prayer this Lenten season for your elected officials, especially in a time of great polarization, contentious debates about budgets, and key questions related to life and human dignity. Perhaps some days you can fit into your schedule an extra Our Father. But maybe once a week you can also dedicate an hour in adoration to praying for each of your elected officials by name. Remember, you can always find out who your local and national elected officials are by visiting our Action Center. Kit just mentioned that address, but here it is again, mncatholic.org forward slash Action Center. Then click on the directory tab and type in your address. We also want to remind our listeners to make sure to get your tickets for Catholics at the Capitol. You won't want to miss this incredible day filled with prayer, education, and advocacy. New this year, we're bringing Christ to the Capitol. We'll have a Eucharistic procession from the Cathedral to the Capitol. Join us on April 15th in St. Paul. Get your tickets at catholicsatthecapital.org. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a great day.